Finding your way to a balanced way of living is the key to health and happiness. Each week on Choosing the Balanced Life with Diabetes, you'll hear tips and tools for a happier and healthier life. Here's your host, Anita Westlake. Diabetes has become a global epidemic. Most of us have been touched by diabetes in one way or another. Many of us are in risk of diabetes and or perhaps we are pre-diabetic and don't even know it. Why is this so? Well, there's a revolutionary new theory outlined in a book called Eat, You Live. And returning guest, Dr. John Puthalil, is the author. This is the fourth episode in a four-part series on his revolutionary new theory on why people are developing diabetes. And in this episode, we're going to talk about authentic weight. What is it? Um, how do we find it? And what does it mean to our health and perhaps preventing diabetes, uh, better managing it, and even reversing it? Welcome back, Dr. John. It's such a pleasure having you back on the show. Thank you, Anita. We left off in talking about how to better manage diabetes, even in the case of type 1 diabetes. I think this is a great way to help people manage themselves and their eating habits and perhaps lowering um, their intake of insulin. And on top of all that, you've had some people actually reverse their type 2 diabetes. And Correct. as you put it in your book, this is a great way to prevent people from becoming type 2 diabetics. And this is your revolutionary new theory on why people have diabetes. And again, this is, you've stated so well, this is your opinion and people reading the book, if they embrace it and they get something from it, it should work for them and hopefully it will. So picking up where we left off, we've talked about your theory on why but a big part of this is, as you pointed out, diet and weight. It does play such a big part in type 2 diabetes. And in your theory, you mentioned about your, the fat cells reaching their maximum and how this can either show up visibly in weight or not. Maybe you don't look overweight, but, you know, again, your fat cells are full and this is about your overall health and finding that authentic weight that works for you whether it's visible or not. To me, this is, um, and to others, I know this is a bit of a mystery because I think a lot of people have struggled with their weight their entire lives. They've been up and down on the scales and they just don't know what their authentic weight is. They've lost you know, all sight of this and they just have visuals on what they think it should be. But as you so well put it in previous episodes, it's, you know, they may appear to be um, their proper weight. And on a chart, it may say the proper weight. But when it comes to their health, they're not at a good weight for their authentic health. Yes. So having you, said you, that... You have, you have put it very nicely. Thank you. Now, having said all that, you've got a story that you'd, you have uh, partially shared with me and that you would like to share with our listeners about weight and people that have struggled with weight their whole lives. Yes. Uh, first of all, I want to thank you, Anita, for having me again on your show, and I thank the listeners of Choosing the Balanced Life with Diabetes. So as you uh, expressed, I'm going to go with the story of Rake, this is a representative sample of what happens to an average American male. Uh, 
it starts like this from high school. He was, Rick was very athletic, and then he went to college. After college, he started a desk job. He got married at age 32, and he was considered thin by way of weight tables until age 35. He did gardening, he did skiing, he went for uh, winter activities, he, he did hiking, he did backpacking whenever possible, just like a regular average American male. At, by age 35, he had two children and his weight was 160 pounds. He had a steady income, so he felt settled. He loved cooking, he loved parties, he loved eating out. He will have pizza or sandwiches on thick, crusty bread for lunch, a dinner of pasta, potatoes and rice, along with some sausage, beef or chicken. He ate out whenever possible. His favorites were Chinese or Italian foods. By age 45, he had, his weight was 170. That's about one pound weight gain per year. I would say this is rather typical of that, uh, of what happens to most people. By age 55, after another 10 years, he again added on another 10 pounds to 180 pounds. Now he got a little bit concerned. He said, well, I will do some exercise to get my weight off. As, you know, everybody talk about diet and exercise, diet and exercise, and he thought correctly so that I'm living, uh, living a sedentary life and I don't do much. Maybe that is why the weight is creeping up. So he started walking and biking whenever possible without realizing that the amount of energy you can spend doing exercise is very minimum compared to what you need to spend to lose a pound of weight. By that I mean one pound of fat contains 3,500 calories. If you walk one hour or two hours or you go on a treadmill or do exercise bike, you may spend 200 calories. So it takes, you, you can do the calculation, how many hours will it take to lose even one pound of weight or one pound of fat? It is not practical. And as we get older, it becomes harder and harder. How many 50-year-old athletes do you see out there? Not very many, hardly any, because your muscles cannot generate the amount of power that you could as a young person. It takes longer to do the same activity. What, what took half an hour previously when you were in 20s now takes one full hour or more and you still feel tired. So it is not practical to rely on exercise to lose weight, period. But you do need exercise, don't get me wrong. You need exercise to condition your heart, condition your muscles, condition your lungs. By conditioning I mean you will have reserve capacity 
So if you are ill, for example, you get pneumonia, you have more lung capacity to get over it compared to somebody who does not have that capacity. So you need to exercise regardless of your weight. Just anyway, for your overall health by the sounds of it. Correct. Correct. Coming back to Rick, by at age 50, I, 58, he went for a routine blood test and he was diagnosed as pre-diabetic. His doctor prescribed medicines and Rick accepted the diagnosis without any question because his mother and her sister had diabetes. Rick did not really understand the nature of the disease or the potential for serious complications. His doctor did not talk too much and he thought, well, he can keep his blood sugar under control with medication. He did try to read something about diabetes and said, okay, I can do something and lose some weight and take the medication and I should be fine. At age 65, uh, 66, 60, I'm sorry, 63, five years later, he had lost seven pounds and that was a situation, he was still on oral medication and that was the state when I asked him to read the manuscript of the book I just published. And that book is Eat, You Live. Eat, You Live. So Rick read the manuscript and then we had a continuous discussion. And one of the things that he got most, most interested was why people overeat. So that's a huge he, question. Why do people, in your opinion, why do people overeat? All right. So I will go through the discussion. This may take a little longer, but I will go through that step by step. And please feel free to interrupt me anytime, Anita. Okay. He, uh, Rick recalled that he was thin until age 35. And he realized how easy it was to afford food and indulge in food that filled up your, his stomach. He understood that that part of filling up the stomach and enjoying it started as a random habit. You know, occasional overeating when there is a party, when you are with friends, uh, when you, there is a celebration, and overeating without being hungry. It didn't matter, it was occasional, but gradually it became a routine process. Now, he realized that he is gaining more and more weight, particularly when he went to buy clothes. But he thought, well, I can control this anytime. All I just have, all I have to do is to do some more exercise because that is what I have not been doing with all the activities such as school activities for children, social events, job-related responsibilities, and of course travel. So he said, okay, I can do this, I can control it at any time. But he found out that that did not happen as he wanted to or as he hoped for, and he ended up with the diagnosis of prediabetes. So 
he and I discussed three possible drivers of overeating, as I have presented in the in the book. Anita, may I go and elaborate on these three one at a time? Please. Um, so you've you've identified three reasons why people are overweight, and the first one would be what is called. Well, let me back up a little bit. For each individual, there can be some other reasons. And even in the same individual, there are, you know, I'm talking about, I'm going to talk about three drivers. That doesn't mean one is for a particular individual. In each individual, there can be more than one. These three plus other drivers. But these three I have identified as more likely to be, or one of these three, or more of them. So they're so more mainstream, go, in other words, is what you're saying. I'm sorry? So that, you know, because this is such a big topic, these are some mainstream reasons right. why people could be, along with other factors, why they could right. be overeating. Right. So the first one I have identified is what is called the dopamine-based driver. Now, dopamine is a neurohormone. And that gives you the, the intense pleasure sensation in your brain. The smell of food, the appealing appearance of food, the free sample of food, all these can trigger that feeling of enjoyment after eating food. So you crave it. You want to experience that pleasure. Even if you know you will gain weight, the urge to enjoy becomes stronger than your willpower to resist what is being offered or what is seen. With each episode of overcoming your own natural hesitancy, you become incapable of resisting it, even if you understand the long-term consequences. Primarily because the conscious, the, the subconscious part of the brain cannot make any value judgment. So it becomes sort of automatic that you enjoy food. It doesn't know five years from now you may be having type 2 diabetes. It wants to enjoy and facilitates, facilitate your enjoyment right now. So that is the first driver, dopamine-based. This is similar to people who get addicted to drugs or some other activity that or cigarettes or and it happens to everyone i'm sorry to interrupt you but whether you're no. you know in risk of developing type 2 diabetes if you're a type 1 diabetic and you know gee i'm going to take more insulin or i'm going to feel kind of um, not so great if i eat this and then i'll have to take more insulin and there's a whole cycle involved in this having this type of food or this amount of food at this time people will still do it right so that is the dopamine driver. The second I have identified is what is called stomach fullness based driver. And let me, this one take a little more time to explain. Even if you, uh, let me back up a little bit. I found many people who eat only in response to the sensation of hunger. They don't eat unless they are hungry. However, they are gaining weight because they don't know when to stop their actual stopping point is when the stomach feels full. So when you do that, that becomes problematic because 
first of all what is the best food to keep your to get you the feeling of fullness carbohydrate especially complex carbohydrate why because they absorb water and swell up inside your stomach and that gives you the feeling of fullness compared to proteins or fat so stomach which is like a balloon can stretch and stretch will require more and more carbohydrate and you will crave car- carbohydrate until so, is that why they say, sorry I, I interrupt you but people will say don't go long periods of time till you're starving because then you'll just end up consuming a whole bunch of food at once and it's it's not going to work when it comes to managing your health your weight um anything like that so they they say going to the point of being very very hungry is not a good thing so if you think you're going to lose weight by skipping meals or going a long period of time without eating that's not a good thing is this and what you're kind of saying is why this may not well, work well there is there is another factor to that the longer you wait you, now first of all when you begin to feel hungry the brain will tell you you are hungry if you ignore it you may notice that in about 10 15 minutes that intensity of hunger will go away why because the liver will release glucose the mo- most of the time the first reason for the brain to create the sensation of hunger is your blood sugar is going down by the way the total amount of blood sugar floating in the blood is about 5 grams a teaspoonful of sugar that is all that is a normal floating blood sugar amount so when it goes down the liver will release uh sugar to compensate for that so your hunger will abate to some part to some extent but the longer you go there are other nutrients being depleted in the body so by the time you come to eat after a long period of starving the brain is not only looking for sugar but all other nutrients and it they the brain wants you to get it as fast as you can so your speed of eating goes up tremendously that before you even start start enjoying the food you have consumed almost half of it so that is the problem main problem i feel with not eating when you are hungry because you tend to eat too fast you cannot control the rate because the brain feels it is going to starve and most of the time what is available will be carbohydrate because it is easy to get it is cheap to, cheaper to get and you start eating carbohydrate so that adds to the problem and i, I think that everyone can identify with that whether it's grabbing you know crackers or or chips or popcorn or uh candy or something and they'll eat that while they're preparing something healthier to eat as the actual meal when in fact they're probably eating the meal or equivalent in calories of a meal before, while they're snacking right so the, you 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 have said it so correctly so this reliance on fullness of the stomach now this is further aided by the advice of experts who say that in order for a meal to be balanced you need to have a certain volume of whole grain now they say the whole grain is healthy because 
it contains fiber and vitamins. Let's take a moment to see what happens to this whole grain in the intestine. It gets refined. Refined to what? Refined to complex carbohydrate and further refined to glucose. So essentially, you are eating refined gray, uh, carbohydrate with a sprinkle of bran containing fiber and vitamins and being very happy that I'm eating whole grain. But the result is if you eat one cup of whole grain, that is equivalent to 12 teaspoons of sugar or glucose. That is exactly what you are eating. Then there is recommendation that you have to eat so many servings of fruit. And what is that going to be absorbed as? Sugar. So, all these adds to the confusion, and rightfully so, people don't know what to eat, when to eat, how much to eat. Well, but a lot of people think, oh, I'll just eat a lot of fruit because, right. um, you know, it's good for you. And, well, sure, it's good for you, but overeating it, eating too much, knowing what your sensitivities are, that's very important because, again, as you just said, it, it all gets broken down into glucose. Right. You can try yourself, check your blood sugar and, and eat a whole fruit and see what happens later on. Your sugar will go up. Right? It will go up. And yeah. uh, it's funny, I just did a test on that yesterday. <laughs> I did that with honey. Yeah. And I know honey is good for you and it's raw honey. And I, I wanted to see in a spoon form. Now, I use honey in my cooking because, uh, again, we can, we can wear a diabetic hat, which we should be doing if we're diabetic or we're afraid of becoming a diabetic or we're pre-diabetes. But I wear mine every day. I'm a type 1, so there is no reversal mm -hmm. till we have a cure. And I know honey is great for you, but sugar, 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 sugar. Right. After we, we understand that, that it doesn't matter. Everything pretty much except for water, uh, you know, mm -hmm. Diet Coke and uh, black tea or coffee is going to equate down to some sort of glucose. And it's how it affects you. Beyond that, we should, and we should be going beyond that, are the nutrients in food, things that we need to keep ourselves healthy beyond sugars. So you want right. to look at your source of sugar. So I always look at that and play with it a little bit because it is so very important. So honey is a tremendously healthy thing. And in a, I bought a raw honey and I wanted to see how it affected me. So mm -hmm. I uh, took a half a teaspoon, very modest amount. And I checked my blood sugar, and it was at a, um, a normal rate. <clears throat> and then I had this, and I checked it five minutes later, and it really hadn't changed much at all. So right. then I waited an additional 12 minutes. So now we're at 22 mm -hmm. minutes after I had this half a teaspoon of raw sugar, and my sugar went up. Yep. So what it told me was two different things. The effect honey would have and how severe in in a, it was raw honey, but in a teaspoon form. We're not talking about cooking with it. We're not talking about adding it into some healthy raw bars where it's distributed amongst, you know, a large amount of other food and evened out. We're talking on the teaspoon. And so my sugar went up a few points where I did require insulin to bring it back down. But it was a good right. measurement for myself because I yep. really wanted to know. It wasn't the end of the world. It was 22 minutes of my life in an right. experiment on how this sugar 
even though so very healthy would affect me. So now I know if I need something like honey, how is it going to affect me when I need sugar? How long right. would that take? And yeah. if I really crave something, and sometimes I do, I crave something sweet, and I look at where I start, maybe I want a quarter of a teaspoon of this right. rather than something else that I might go to. I know how an apple affects me. I know how chocolate affects me in a, in a right. card candy. So it was a good little experiment I did for myself. Everybody right. is different. Right. The, for me, the most important thing is with all these recommendations of, uh, based on quantity of com, uh, food, food groups, the quantity you put on your plate becomes a visual um, representation. So once you put it on the plate, you are going to eat it because you don't want to waste. Now, as we get older, we don't real realize how little energy-containing foods we need to sustain ourselves from day to day, unless, of course, you are doing heavy manual labor. Once you pass the age of 40, you don't need a whole lot of complex carbohydrates. You, pra you practically need very little because you cannot spend that kind of energy, as I explained earlier, that your muscles cannot generate enough energy. So you need very little complex carbohydrates or any energy-containing food for that matter. Okay. Now, let's go on to the third driver. We are talking about overeating, and we talked about dopamine-based driver. We talked about stomach fullness-based driver. The third one is a big one, another, another big one called stress-induced driver. And, of course, any stimulus that you feel is harmful to your safety, security, or well-being, is considered stress. Now, most of these stimuli for stress are the same for almost everybody. It can be a perceived threats, illness, injury, overwork, unsolved work issues, family problems, relationship issues, or mere inconvenience, any of these can set people off. Some people can handle stress very easily, while another person will look for a calming agent. And food becomes a major calming agent because it is easily available, it is affordable, and more importantly, physiologically, it is well known as a calming agent. Now, let me explain this a little bit more. The reason food becomes identified as a calming agent at the time of stress is because of the suppressing effect of food on adrenaline release. Now, when you are hungry, Adrenaline is released in the body. The brain stimulates the adrenal gland to release adrenaline so that you can get up and go and look for food. When you are under stress, 
then also adrenaline is released because the brain wants you to get away from the area of stress or do some action to take care of the stressful event. Now imagine if you get hungry when you are stressed or vice versa. Your adrenaline release will be much stronger. And when you eat something, it reduces the adrenaline release and it calms you down. And this establishes the connection between food and calming down. So food has become a coping mechanism for stress release. Does that a lot make of, sense to you? It does. And a lot of us do when we get um, you know, emotional in that way with stress or, or stressed out at work. We will, I call it mindless eating. Yeah. Yeah. So now, how can we stop these three types of overeating? Now, let me take by, one by one. If you are overeating based on the dopamine or the desire to have intense pleasure, you have to rethink what are important in life, you know, simple things that can give you pleasure. So you need to look at small things, whether it is smelling a flower or playing with uh, your grandkids or kids or friends or animals. And more importantly, eating, you have to concentrate on the enjoyment of eating. And you get the full enjoyment of eating if you start your meal with the sensation of hunger compared to when you are not hungry. So you are cheating yourself off enjoyment of a meal when you strictly go for the dopamine-based intense pleasure of eating anything that looks appealing or smells appealing. So these are the two things. Cultivate alternate activities for enjoyment and also when, you, when it comes to eating, make sure that you are hungry. Now, how do you stop the fullness, stomach fullness-based driver? Here I have explained in the book, you have to teach yourself to eat like a toddler. Satisfaction is the key rather than fullness. And that will take a lot of time, anywhere from three to six months of practice, to go back to the toddler days when you had exactly the same faculties to control your intake without filling up your stomach. I think that can be an extremely difficult thing to learn how to do because we really have lost that feeling of um, satisfaction rather than a full stomach. Yes, it is. I, I don't doubt that. But once you imagine the benefit, once you retrain that, again, it is you have practiced it for six years. It is in the, in, in the depth of your memory. It is there. It is only a matter of activating it and reactivating it. Once you get control of that, once you practice it, you don't have to be concerned about where you eat, when you eat, with whom you are, eat, you know, who you are eating with. You will have control of what you consume. Is that so why is 
sorry to interrupt, but is that why do you think um, a lot of times to get some kind of perspective, uh, people go with measurement? Well, this should be enough for this height, uh, this age group and nutrients. And so start with this. Do you think that that's why diets came up with portion sizes to kind of get us in tune with what would satisfy us rather than a full stomach? And it's some start, it's a starting point for a lot of people. No, most of these diet programs came about because the American Diabetic Association wanted to help people with diabetes uh, how to lose weight. They, they found out when you lose weight, your blood sugar goes down. And the, the, all the diet plans were based on energy control or reducing the energy intake. So all the diet programs now are variations of the same thing. If you control energy, uh, so the, you lose weight. You take in less energy than you are spending, your body will draw from stored fat and you lose weight. What all the diet programs are based on strictly energy, not nutrient based. So oh, this that's is why, true. right, that is why it failed after you reach the weight that you want or desire or close to it, then what? How do you provide the body with the, all the nutrients? You have not done that, so you go back to the original way of eating and regain most of it back. Because you may not be getting the nutrients. Correct. Well, and during, during the same time, multiple nutrients are lost. You get intense craving while you are on this diet. I was just going to say the very same thing about um, type 1 diabetes. Uh, a lot of these portion controls were to help us, and of course, to help us measure out medications, uh, food intake, and exercise. And we're juggling these three balls all the time. But the one ball that is left out a lot of time is nutrients, which is so very important. But, you know, at the beginning, you have enough just with medications, exercise, and food. And that goes with a first diagnosis of type 2 or even prediabetes. That's what they get you to focus on to get these things in order. But a lot of times I see people go for sugar-free jams, uh, sugar-free, even down to sugar-free chocolate, all these sugar-free things and uh, fat-free and everything's free of fat, sugar, and we won't even go to salt because that, that seems to be the last thing on the list. But they're not really eating any food. They're not feeding their bodies. They're not getting any nutrients, and they wonder why they're always hungry. Well, it's because you've only looked at artificially cutting out or substituting sugars and not getting a better source of sugar and not giving yourself nutrients. Right. The other thing is when you are uh, based, when you are dependent on the fullness-based stoppage or driver as overeating, as your reason for overeating, if you, while you have, while it takes time to reactivate your toddler way of eating, one way to keep you motivated is to think about the consequences of that weight gain, such as type 2 diabetes or needing more medication to control your blood sugar. So that could give you a, a motivation or needed motivation to keep it going. Now, the third, third one is stress-induced. What do you do? 
the best advice i can give you is deal with your stress immediately after a meal in other words if you are hungry postpone dealing with whatever is stressful because it will release more adrenaline and you may not be in a position to even think clearly but sometimes it may not be practical that you have to deal with it you are hungry there is a stressful situation you have to act on it if you are put in that situation put a sugar containing hard candy in your mouth and let it melt just like you do in the state of hypoglycemia it will stop the brain from releasing signals to the adrenal gland to release more adrenaline you will get a little bit of calming for about 20 to 30 minutes interesting so these are, yeah you should be carrying a sugar containing hard candy with you wherever you go because you don't know when you will be hungry and whether you will get into a stressful situation at that time So this calms the brain down almost in the way that you in a previous episode you described how to calm the brain down when having a low blood sugar. So you're letting yeah. the brain know it's okay, you're getting some sugar, we're starting to deal with this calm down in order for you to further deal with your low blood sugar. In this right. case what you're saying is pretty much the same thing. It's saying, yeah. okay, let's calm down brain. Here's a little bit of sugar, something for you to to play with <laughs> or to right. know that you're getting it so as to deal with whatever you need to deal with. Exactly. Now, we started with uh, Rick. So we are, I'm going to come back to Rick's story because there's a little bit more interesting detail here. After Rick and I discussed this, Rick implemented what I explained in the book, the behavior changes the two major ones being not eating any grain based products and the second being eating like a toddler he lost 14 pounds his blood sugar went down he felt very good about himself he said he is on top of the world he can control everything and then what happened he became complacent he started eating a little bit of bread a little bit of pasta summarize and he felt oh i can do this i am in control 3 months later his blood sugar was higher than when i saw him when i met him the first time now that was a shock to him he thought so he became more diligent he got back on track he did what he was supposed to be doing and now his blood blood sugar 3 months later was the lowest it has been in years so that is the situation with rick he has learned a lesson he has made the connection between the the grain based products and his blood sugar just like you did anita with uh, with honey uh, honey and fruits he has now finally figured out what caused his weight gain after age 35 to begin with and how he became a pre-diabetic in spite of his family history of diabetes he now knows he does not have to live the rest of his life as a diabetic he feels so good uh, you cannot shake his 
confidence. You have to admire his confidence, and he, I'm sure, he will succeed for the rest of his life. Now, during this time when he had lost the 14 pounds and his sugar went down, which was wonderful, did he gain any weight, or was this all just about his sugars? When he, you know, started to introduce some more grains and pasta and rice into his diet over that three month period, he couldn't have. Gain that fourteen pounds back that he had lost previous to this time. This sounds like it was really about his sugars just being elevated once again. That is possible. I, have, I he did gain a few pounds, but not the whole fourteen. No. So no. at this point, he hadn't necessarily gained all the weight back. This was about him going back to eating in an improper way or a way that, for his body, it affected him and his sugars elevating. Yeah. Well, you have to keep in mind if your fat cells are completely full, any sugar you take in excess of immediate need will stay in the blood until the liver can dispose it off. So it is not surprising. No, just like in your case, if you eat anything more than what the liver can convert into fat, and your fat cells can accommodate. Where can it go? Where can the sugar go? It will stay in the blood. It will elevate your blood sugar. So what it tells me is, his weight is about an authentic weight as uh, for his body type. His fat cells are almost completely full. You know, so weight it will not change a whole lot, but the blood sugar can go up. Absolutely. Unless he, unless he loses a few more pounds. Then the blood sugar will remain normal because the liver can now convert that into fat and send it to his storage area. Well, even as a type one diabetic, I, I gained、um, some really useful tips and insight. Having a look at your book and, and discussing these things with you, I don't produce insulin, so I, I have to have my own artificial, which I, of course, is one of the things I balance. Right? How much am I going to take in a course of a day? But、right. one thing I've I've done, and that's just by going through years of a change in management, was at one point we took one injection a day. And then we they introduced oh I think we're going to try di- diabetics on two injections a day would better help you manage your diabetes and of course it was your choice but being still、uh, a young person I said okay you know the doctor said we have to do this I'll I'll do this and a lot of people experienced lows but the, overall it was a better way of managing your diabetes and that was taking two injections a day then they said well why don't we try This you take a long-acting insulin that's going to last you a 24-hour period of time, and, and I'm just giving you a baseline. Obviously, everyone's different, but for the main, this is what they suggested. And then,、right. when you eat, you'll take a fast-acting insulin when you eat. Well,、right. I took that as a whole lot of freedom, and、right. what I did was that didn't mean that I had to eat the same time every day because I didn't have this excess insulin floating around in my system. When I ate, I took this insulin. When my sugar was high and I tested, I would take insulin. So that meant if I was going to have a snack or I was going to have pizza at an outing on an occasion with friends, I would take this、um, added insulin. And so I've kept it that way, just as our body has. I'm able to do this now, just because it's noon, and my work environment doesn't say, "Okay, this is the only time I'm going to have to eat is from twelve to one." 
I eat when I'm hungry. But I've been able to adopt this, just like you say in your book, that I'm, you know, I'm feeding my body as it needs it. I'm not feeding it because I've smelt McDonald's down the hallway and, you know, it's triggered some, you know, sensation that I need to have that. I'm able to feed my body and it's really helped me in identifying when I'm hungry, when I'm full and I'm, and I'm not perfect. I mean, I've had weight go up and down, but I wouldn't say to any huge or great degree. And again, exercise isn't been the way for me to lose weight rather than it's helped me manage my medication when it comes to diabetes and that's my insulin. So all of these things are so very important and I'm type one. Uh, you know, I'm waiting for a cure, which would be absolutely wonderful. Anybody who's afraid of, you know, developing diabetes or is pre-diabetic or wants to get off their medication or lower it, um, these are fantastic suggestions. And if you can read your book and embrace these things, I think it's so very, very helpful. And I, and I think for anyone looking at their health and wanting to lose weight, these suggestions are marvelous. This is a great time to make a point that I've been telling people. When you gain weight, you do it so slowly. In, in the case of Rick, maybe a pound a year. But most people are in such a hurry to lose weight. And what happens is when you lose weight in such a hurry, you may not be taking in the nutrients that the body needs for proper functioning and you get intense cravings because your brain identifies certain foods containing nutrients that the body needs at that particular time. So my suggestion is if we can lose weight in a slower way, the body can get used to it more naturally and don't give, don't create the intense cravings. And my suggestion is to lose maybe at the rate of one pound a week. A lot of people don't have the patience for that or they don't feel they're successful. And and I think that's part of the problem. They don't see success. But what you're saying is that's long-term success. Correct. As long as you are going in the right direction, as long as you are losing one pound a week, maybe at the most two, your body can easily adjust to that. And you will not feel that one pound that you have lost. No, it will not show up on the scale as fast as, as you would like to. But your physiological systems, your body systems can easily accommodate and recalculate the nutrients that you are not getting and adjust to that and create, you know, influence the selection of your food, which I will come to in just a few minutes. So that is what you have to uh, hope for, just a very slow, steady weight loss. Now, not only when you lose slowly, even then you will reach a plateau where you are not losing anything. That is your brain's way of telling you, we need time to readjust to the new weight level. We need to recalculate what nutrients are needed now to maintain what you have. So you may, for a couple of weeks or three weeks, you may not lose anything. Then you start again. You lose a little bit more here. That is the fine tuning you have to do. The importance of this is by the time you reach the authentic weight or the where you want to go, you have nothing more to change. 
Now you can look at your each meal. What is the objective of your meal? You eat only when you are hungry. But what does that mean? That means each time you get hungry, your brain has three objectives. One is obtain nutrients that the body needs at that particular time. As I discussed earlier, each time you are hungry, the nutrient needs of the body are different. It is not the same. So that is why if you go to a buffet, you will select different foods if you go to the same buffet for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, you will not consume exactly the same food. Why? Because nutrients absorbed from the previous meal have not been used up. At the same time, new nutrient needs have appeared in the body and the brain has recognized them and will change your taste preference to something else. So, number one objective of a meal is to obtain nutrients. Number two is to reduce the intensity of hunger. And number three, to prevent overeating. Now, Anita, may I go into a little bit more detail to each, about each one of these? Please. Now, let's start with obtaining needed nutrients. How do you know what food to select when you go to a meal, just like a buffet. Now, I like to use this example. When you go to select clothes or shoes, let's say there are 20 pairs of them, all are appealing and within your budget, you will have a hard time choosing. Why? Because your conscious mind has to analyze each pair or each cloth and decide based on the style and your sense of comfort. Whereas if there are 20 food items, I will say to you that you'll have less difficulty to choose what you will enjoy the most, two or three items. You won't have as much trouble as you would have had if you were going to select shoes or clothes. Why? Because when it comes to food, your subconscious mind has evaluated based on the current needs and the past experience of that type of food. Again, we are talking about foods that are familiar to you. The subconscious mind will tell you or will calculate which food will contain the maximum number of nutrients your body needs at that particular time and will present that to the conscious part of the brain. Now you can decide, okay, these three are the most appealing to me right now. Imagine if the subconscious mind has not done that processing, then each food you look at there is something appealing, either for now, or you can say, well, this will help me later. There are vitamins here, or that one contains something else. And each food is useful. So how do you decide? It will be just like the decision based on, uh, decision you have to make on clothes or shoes. It will, you will have a hard time deciding. 
So really what you're saying is the first three is if you're craving them or they're appealing to you, they're standing out. That's what you should be having for nutrients. Because even the meal before, you haven't fully absorbed, let's say, or utilized the nutrients you've gotten from that meal. So it's an ongoing cycle, really. And by picking the, the top three is really ensuring at each meal that you are getting nutrients that the body will need overall. The, the, the most needed nutrients at that particular event of hunger, yes. And and that's a good uh, thing to keep in mind because otherwise, as you said, we could keep just picking and choosing and eating, and I think that's part of the cycle of the eating problem is that right. we just keep going and going at, rather than, as you said, maybe we want to pick out three things that that call to us. Again, if the, the problem with this, if you are depending on the fullness of the stomach, this will not work because you will eat until you are full rather than go, lo, go looking for the enjoyment because here the key is the enjoyment and the three things you pick up is the three things that you will enjoy the most during that meal. Well, and, and I and I think the fullness is part of the issue as you, you, you put it, that you don't want to eat to go for the fullness of the stomachs, but we want we want to get nutrients. So picking right. the first three things is a great place to start and to train ourselves. Right, exactly. Now, after you select it, then the quantity control, you have to pay undivided attention to the bite of food in your mouth. For example, if you are asked to do two demanding tasks at the same time, Let's say you are reading and you have to do a mathematical problem at the same time or two different mathematical problems. Your brain activity will not increase. In fact, it will decrease because your conscious part of the brain can concentrate only on one thing at a time. If you are listening to what I am saying right now, if somebody else starts talking to you, you have to make a choice. Either you listen to me or listen to the other person. You cannot do both at the same time. So, if you are eating, if your taste buds and smell receptors are sending signals to the brain, your conscious part of the brain has to decide the intensity of enjoyment and is it going down. In order to do that, it needs undivided attention. If you are watching TV, if you are talking to somebody else, if you are watching a game, if you are reading, if you are attending a meeting, your eating becomes, uh, your quantity of meal will be controlled by your subconscious mind. And if you are used to ending the meal based on the emptiness of the plate or fullness of the stomach, you know what can happen because there is solid evidence that if you are eating while watching TV, you will eat more. Oh, and so many of us do that. We'll take a snack to the television, watch a movie, and we'll just keep going and going. Whether it's a, yeah. a you know bag of chips that uh, you intended on having a few while watching a movie, that bag will become empty before the movie's over. And it happens to so many of us. And, and that's, first of all, chips aren't a healthy choice, but if you're going to have them, your portion can control can go way off. When you combine those two enjoyable activities, 
you are not enjoying either of them to the full extent you will be better off eat eating enjoying it and then watch the program because then you get independent enjoyment from two different stimuli now when you are eating you have to concentrate as i said on the intensity of the enjoyment because your termination of a meal should be based on the reduction in the intensity of enjoyment of that particular food and if you are not paying attention how do you know so regardless of what is left on the plate you may still have some food but if you are not enjoying it as you did before or oh, you stop now there is no meter to measure the degree of enjoyment just like any other feelings you cannot measure it so you have to decide what is your termination point with regards to the intensity of enjoyment now i suggested in my book drinking or sipping warm water to clean the taste buds so that you can appreciate the reduction in the enjoyment of the next bite of food now people will ask me sometimes well suppose i am still hungry after i finish a meal what do i do so the reason for that will be that could be the the food items you selected may not contain all the nutrients the body needed at that particular time and naturally you may still feel hungry because the brain is looking for some other nutrient and if it is not in the food that is in front of you what can you do so you have to teach your brain yes we do have another meal coming in a few hours you may get an opportunity to put that nutrient back into your into the body at that time once you learn that then your brain will be fine so this is where you have to use some will power stop eating because the food that is in front of you that you have been eating is not enjoyable anymore even though you are still hungry in other words what you are saying is your enjoyment the degree of enjoyment can go down earlier than the reduction in the intensity of hunger so that is something you have to get used to and and develop some will power correct just to stop eating because it is the what you are eating is not enjoyable not because your hunger has completely abated now the third part the brain would like to do is prevention of overeating now how can the brain do that the brain can help you with that only if you do not rely on the feeling of fullness or the emptiness of plate to stop overeating you have to let the brain be in control then the reduction in the enjoyment will be your signal to stop so in the fourth part of my book i explain what you can do to completely change your eating behavior which can lead to reduction in the use of your diabetic medication 
Now, Anita, may I add here a word of caution for people who are on insulin? Absolutely. I'm one of them. I know I'm a type 1, but nevertheless, I'm on insulin. You have to be aware that most doctors are not used to a protocol of how to reduce the dosage of insulin. In fact, the reason I'm saying that is because all five people who are on in, taking insulin that I gave the manuscript to read, they all experienced low blood sugar when they practiced what I instructed them to do in my book. Why? Because they could not reduce the dosage of insulin fast enough. And thankfully, they realized that and adjusted the dosage and all of them are taking one-fourth or in one case one-seventh of the dose of insulin they started up with by following the recommendations in my book. So if you are on insulin and going to practice what I suggest in the book, be careful because you may experience low blood sugar and if that happens at the peak action time of your insulin and if the peak action time happens to be at night you may be confused and even more so if you have had some alcoholic beverages and the peak action of the alcohol of, uh, and that of insulin coincide you could be in danger. So this is a warning I have to give to the listeners, and I hope you agree with that. Absolutely. If you're going to try anything new, and in this case, uh, reading the book, Eat, Chew, Live, and making that adjustment in lifestyle, especially when it comes to food, be very, very cautious of your medications. And they, you want to consult your um, physicians and say, I'm trying something new. I'm cutting back on my uh, carbohydrates and, um, you know, get some advice or maybe some tips from them. But be conscious that low blood sugars are, are could happen and are there, and we have to really be mindful of them. Right. The, the, the listeners can talk to their doctor about this book and encourage them to look into that and see whether it helps them to understand what the listener will be going through. Because a low blood sugar is far, far more dangerous than a few hours or even a few days of high blood sugar. Absolutely. And and it's always something um, to manage. I know in my case, I'm, I'm always, uh, always on the lookout in case I have a, or what could cause a low blood sugar. Same with type 2 diabetes. You're taking insulin, you still have the risk of low blood sugars. Again, this is all fine-tuning and adjustment, and you should keep your um, health care provider in the loop and letting them know so that they can help support you with ideas on how not to um, suffer, I'm going to say suffer, low blood sugars, and what you can do about this. But if, the, if your objective is to take less medication um, or perhaps even get off it, in the case of type 1, take less medication – this is a journey that you, you usually go through. And when you have an adjustment or you're upping your exercise or any sort of change, sometimes, unfortunately, it doesn't even have to be a change in your diet or exercise. Sometimes we just have low blood sugars. It could be 
our just our bodies. It could be hormones. It could be emotions. It could be anything. But in this case, when you're doing something different with the diet and exercise and you're embracing it, you really want to be cautious of this. Correct. Having said that, this is it's a small price to pay to make this wise adjustment when it comes to eating in a more healthy way. And if that equates not developing type 2 diabetes, uh, lowering our medications, whether we're type 1 or type 2, and in a, in a case of type 2, reversing it, it's all well worth it. And I'm sure your healthcare provider would support and embrace the idea of you moving forward in a positive way. I, I I agree with you 100%. So, again, thank you so much for joining me today. And I, this was so fascinating, um, authentic weight. As you put it, if you're feeding the proper, the body properly with the nutrients and that it needs and getting back in touch with that as we did when we were young, you will find your authentic weight. Whether you've struggled your whole life with weight or not, you can do it. It can happen for you. And these were some really insightful tips and um, suggestions for people to make about their health overall. And diabetes is on the rise. Never mind type 2 diabetics also, remember, have these same, very same struggles. We have diabetes for a very different reason, but we still get cravings. We still maybe too many carbs, taking much more insulin. All of these factors can be very difficult in managing type 1 diabetes. So I found your book very enjoyable, and um, I think it's a great tool for people to have a look at in managing their health and prevention of diabetes along with all the other wonderful factors. The basic idea is instead of just saying that I have a disease, I have to take this medication, each person should understand as much as possible what is going on in the body, take charge of what the body needs and should be managing whatever they can instead of totally relying on medications. So once the person understands what I am trying to say in the book, the question is whether they agree with it and more importantly, whether they can practice it. It is entirely up to the person to do. If they don't do it, then nothing is going to work. And as you correctly pointed out, you have to go beyond just a diagnosis and medication. You need to know the basis of how the body functions. And the more you, the more you know about it, the more empowered you are to take care of yourself. Absolutely. And so, again, I thank you so much for joining me today. Have a look at Eat, Chew, Live. And where can, um, where can we get your book? The book is available at Barnes & Noble bookstores and some local bookstores, if they uh, are interested, can talk to my publisher and distributor. And Amazon is already shipping books. So those two are good sources for now. If you can go to your local book bookstore and ask them, they may contact my publisher and distributor to get books to their stores. Now, if they went to your website, could they order it off from your website online? Yes. Yes. 
they can do that and another thing i will request the listeners is go to your public library and ask them to have a couple of copies for the benefit of those who may not be able to afford the books and your website is www.eatyoulive.com correct Thank you. And if you have any questions about today's um, episode, please feel free to email me, Anita, at anitacoach.ca, and follow me on Twitter at Anita Westlake.